Greetings, dear listeners. This week, we have the French philosopher Philippe Lemoyne on the show. Philippe is a contrarian in the best sense of the word. The conversation starts off with him making the case for adding more direct democracy into our political system. We then turn to Philippe's experience debating with scientific experts during COVID and what his experience tells us about how unhealthy our relationship with science really is. In the bonus episode, for paying subscribers only, we turn once again to the woke wars and whether the fever is breaking. If you're not yet a paying member, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and help support us. On to the show. Very pro democracy. I, I could talk about this. Direct democracy. I mean. Oh, uh, oh wow. Yeah. Well, there we go. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, Start so us I, off on direct I democracy. Like, uh, I have various arguments in favor. So of you like you like. Uh, so really? I'm not. You know, I agree with you that the kind of thing you describe. You know, where you have like policymakers have constant like you know second by second inputs on public opinion. I mean, of course, it's not feasible. But if it were, like, I agree, it would likely be bad. But. Um, I think that uh, there are very good arguments for in favor of like some measure of direct democracies. And so one of them is that I see that as a way to fix or at least partially fix what I think is essentially um, an imperfection of the what you might call the political market. So basically the political offer, it's for if only for practical reasons, it's always going to be li- limited. You're always you're, you're only going to have like um, a limited number of packages of position as mm. as, as it were you know so mm. like um mm. because you can only have a limited number of candidates uh and you know people have to create to be like viable candidate they need to make coalitions so you know they can't be you can't have that many of them and like they need so it limits the range of combinations of positions held by any candidate mm. at least any viable candidate and so it forces people effectively to vote for candidates who have positions that they disagree with even if uh, they might actually, you know, if you were asked only about that specific issue, it might be a majority uh, that agree with them on that position. And so that's, I think, one reason why, you know, this, this is an imperfection of the political market. And I see uh, stuff like popular initiatives in Switzerland as a way of partially fixing that. Because if you, if you, so, you know, for instance, uh, I, I was actually, actually, you know, when there was a referendum in France in 2005, about whether we were going to accept the um, um, the so-called European Constitution, I mean, it was really a treaty, but uh, and so it was rejected. But then, in two thousand two years later, in two thousand seven, well, it was actually in two thousand eight, but in two thousand seven, Sarkozy was elected president, and eventually had it essentially the same thing. It wasn't quite the same thing, but approved by uh, for all practical purposes, it was the same thing. The approved by, by Parliament. Yeah. He approved the, ratified the treaty. Well, a new version, but again, it was for practical purposes, the same thing. Yeah. And his argument was like, I didn't betray, um, you know, uh, the, the popular will because I did say during the campaign that I would do this. First of all, it's not quite true that he said he would do this. He said he would vote... I would have Parliament vote a simplified treaty, and the treaty in question wasn't simplified at all. It was just basically the same thing again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, that's not the most important point. The most important point is that look, uh, people vote for you know they didn't vote Sarkozy. Like they had plenty of reasons to vote for Sarkozy, and 
a majority of the popula- of the voters at least voted for him and clearly uh, if you look at polls you know not only because of, like they, they hadn't most of them hadn't changed their mind on this issue so they didn't vote for him because of this they voted for him in spite of this and this is fine you know this is a I mean, you know, I, so that's I, just how say, represent- I, I just say it's more than fine, though. I mean, look, the, the counter is, and Shadi can adjudicate as the expert on democracy here, but the, the counter on this is that uh, you want to actually empower individuals in <clears> office <throat> to make decisions that, in fact, you know, don't necessarily go back. Uh, the idea that the people actually self-govern is one of those nice rhetorical fictions, but <clears> doesn't actually function that way. I think the the closer... To the reality, I mean, Shadi and I go back and forth a lot on the sort of the moral weight and the importance of democracy about dignity and all the rest of this. But ultimately, in pragmatic terms, uh, democracy is a very efficient way of legitimating turnover of power. And the insofar as the people rule, um, that is a uh, mechanism that plays into this sort of the ability to change rulers because it's easier and legitimacy is more easy to conjure up, basically. So... You know, I, I I take all your points on that, but the, the question is, is, you know, uh, if you just very pragmatically, if you were to proliferate positions and try and match positions much more carefully towards people, uh, towards whatever the people are in aggregate, um, is it more governable? I'm not so sure. Uh, one. Two. Um, you know, I, I, I like to think of the people as sort of a babbling schizophrenic, not as, you know, there's this metaphor of the people. And then we imagine like the Leviathan in that famous, you know, uh, uh, drawing for, yeah. for Thomas Hobbes, you know, made up of, of multitudes and is one big person. But in fact, it's just a, a babbling mess. And, you know, this is what's so interesting to me about what I was saying, you know, what is an election but just a single poll? It's just a snapshot, and it doesn't actually tell us anything inherent about the will of the people. It's a poll that we've sanctified by diktat. This is the one poll that matters. It's, you know, uh, the sample size is bigger than most polling uh, firms can actually manage at any one time. So, you know, presumably it's a little bit more legitimate, but it's just a fucking poll. And so, you know, strip away all of the sort of metaphysics of the people and the rest of this. You just have a a very clever legitimating mechanism, which empowers... uh, a ruler for a delimited amount of time to make decisions efficiently. So that uh, sounds great though. Like what you just described, that sure. is really the heart of democracy. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go on, Shadi. So you like Look, this though? Well, I like this in the sense that I, I believe in giving leaders a wide degree of latitude once they're elected. Um, so four years or two years or whatever it is, they do, they do, you know, more or less what they want to do. And then we as citizens can decide how we feel about that four years later. So in that sense, it's not that the people rule, it's that the people rule on whether leaders stay in power for determined periods of time. That seems pretty good to me. Um, And that's why, like when Trump won in 2016, I was like, okay, this is scary, but at the same time, he can do what he wishes and he can have crazy ideas and implement his anti-immigration and even anti-Muslim policies. And then we do have to, in some sense, wait four years later to decide how we feel about that, which we did. Democracy's awesome. Hmm. That I mean, like people don't realize like things worked out pretty good, but I don't, you know, not to <laughs> people don't like it when I say that because um, <laughs> people want to like self-loathe and all that. Um, also on foreign policy, and this is where I think, Philippe, you, you'll have, I think, an interesting and divergent view. And we should also tell our dear listeners that um, 
I'll Fili- want to reply to that too because I yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I don't know. We come back to wherever yeah, we like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Philippe is is working on a book. Am I allowed to say that you're working on a book? Yeah, sure. Okay, <laughs> yeah. And I think, uh, as far as I understand, it's the case against liberal empire. Yeah, what I what I call lim- liberal imperialism. I, yeah. I have like be- before. Well, the now the 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 book is not going to be the book is really going to be like a more like a history of post Cold War. Uh, West-Russia relations. Mm, okay. uh, and, you know, kind of like how we got to the point where we are now. So it's not going to be so much about the current war as about how we got to this point where this yeah. war happened was possible and, and why I think it wasn't it wasn't inevitable and we could have avoided so, this. Well, but then I, I have like, I have a forthcoming piece which is going to be, I mean, it's literally called the, the, the case against, against liberal imperialism where I argue against this thing that I call liberal imperialism. And I, okay. we, we can talk maybe later about this because I'd like to, to go back yeah, to Yeah, the reason I brought up the foreign policy aspect is because, you know, I'm not sure if ordinary Americans should be very engaged on China policy. Like, I, I think that, you know, people get voted, represent, elected representatives, make uh, they devise Ukraine policy or China policy. I don't know if there's really an effective way to subject foreign policy decisions to the whims of people who don't particularly care about foreign policy. Like no one actually decides who to vote for on the local level based on whether they're hawkish towards China or not. Like that, that in isolation is not going to be a determining factor. So at some level, there has to be this idea of delegation. We delegate foreign policy to our elected representatives and we don't necessarily want there to be like more popular well i mean you so it uh, so if you if you're against liberal imperialism though then you might actually want americans to play more of a de- direct role under the notion that if they have a say they won't be totally on board with liberal imperialism uh yes although i'm much more skeptical that direct democracy is going to help in foreign policy because I think it's something where people basically don't care about it yeah. and they will and they don't know anything about it and it's very difficult to get them to know something about it because uh, they don't care about it and so it's much easier to move them sway them uh, in the way you know the people who do know about it although I think often they make terrible decisions uh, won't you know so this is not you know I, while I am in favor of uh, uh a measure of uh, direct democracy, I'm under no delusion that it would make a huge difference in that case. Mm, you know, mm. I think it would only when things are so bad that uh, representatives would do it anyway because you know it's become it's no longer tenable to yeah. have to continue with the policies they have. You know, so when a lot of people start dying or it costs too much money or but you know it it takes really it's very it takes a lot before people start caring about foreign policy. You know, ordinary people is what I mean. You know, you, you need to have like enough people coming back in body bags or that sort of things. And, uh, and you know, in particular, they also don't really don't care at all about what's happening in the world as long as it doesn't affect them. So it's, it gets, it's very difficult to get them. So, you know, my argument in favor of direct democracy really doesn't rest much on, on foreign okay. policy for this reason. Uh, well, coming back to what you were saying, so I actually agree, you know, with the view broadly with the view you defended, which is I call like the Schumpeterian view of democracy, mm. where democracy is mostly a legitimation, legitimizing uh, mechanism to handle power transitions. And I think there's a lot of truth to this, and that's a very valuable thing. And so I don't think we should see this as like, you know, 
like in a way it is a cynical view about democracy but it's not cynical in a bad sense you know that's very important you know if you live in a country where transitions are violent you know you're very grateful when yes. they're not you know yeah. and then you know because civil wars are really nasty things and mm. uh best to be avoided yeah so uh so so I, I largely agree with this but in fact i want to turn this on you i think that one of the reasons i'm in favor of a measure of direct democracy is that i think that still even though it is really this the reason why democracy and in particular competitive elections are uh, legitimizing is because of this idea that people rule themselves and so if you reach the point where there's too much divergence between the elites and the ordinary people, you break the magic. And so I see direct democracy as a means, putting a little bit of it at least, as a means of ensuring, as a mechanism to ensure that there is not too much divergence. Hmm. And, and so, um, and, and I think it's particularly important at the moment because of uh, uh, polarization along educational lines has really increased a lot. And I think has increased the gap between the elites broadly construed and ordinary people. And so, so that's one thing. Uh, one argument I have in favor of uh, at least some uh, mechanism of direct democracy. Uh, and another one is that it's related to another thing you said. Where you said, you know, basically people like have, are all over the place. They have no coherent thing. They don't vote. You know, one thing I agree, you know, basically another way of putting your point is that people, people's electoral behavior, the, the way they vote, uh, they don't, it's not like it's not as if they vote so as to maximize the satisfaction of their ideological preferences. That's not how people vote, and I one hundred percent agree with this. Uh, but in fact, that's one of my that's the premise of one of my other arguments in favor of direct democracy. So, how do people vote? Would you say? I think the way people vote basically is that they identify various social groups, and um, they think, okay, what's a guy like me? Given the social groups I identify with, who sh should a guy like me vote for? So they vote primarily on identity, again, like very broadly construed. And so to give you an example, I like to give, you know, in France, for instance, it's I, I very often I've had this conversation, with like especially old people. And you talk to them about immigration and they say the most incredibly racist shit. <laughs> Stuff that, you know, Le Pen w not only wouldn't say publicly, but, but I, I can tell you for a fact, she doesn't even think. Like what's an example of something that's so far right that even Le Pen wouldn't consider well, it. Like, for instance, you know, we should send back uh, uh, Muslims, even if they're born in France or that kind of thing. <laughs> and she, not only she doesn't... Stay away from old people wearing this out of France, yeah, well, well, it's she, not she, even legal. Like, I don't think you can do that to a French no, citizen. You, no, it's not. But they, they don't probably don't know that often and don't care. Uh, but That's the people decide. Yeah. At the end well, of the day, so, change the laws. But so, um, they, so they will, they will tell you stuff like this, you know? And, you know, it doesn't mean that they would actually do it because then, you know, if you start doing it, you see people on television like crying and stuff. And then, you know, public opinion would shift and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I'm not saying they're monsters, you know, that's not my point, you know, but no. they will say stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and um, and yet, you know, but then you tell them, oh, so you're, you're going to vote for Le Pen, right? And then they're genuinely horrified <laughs> that you would suggest such a thing. <laughs> I say, no, what are you talking about? I'm not a fascist. <laughs> <laughs> they just said that kind of thing, you know. I'm not a fascist. I'm never going to vote for Le Pen. That's good. And why yeah. is that? Well, that's because they think of themselves as moderate people. Yeah. They're yeah. not fascists. So they so vote for moderate. People so, like yeah. them vote yeah. for moderate. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, that's an example of how people vote based on identity and not so as to satisfy the, uh, the maximize the satisfaction of their ideological it, it, preferences. One could say that it's the dinner party test. You think about the dinner parties that you go to on a weekly basis 
And you have to be comfortable telling your dinner party companions who you voted for. You want to be respected and be respectable. And, you know, you have to be part of polite company. So can you imagine, you know, in most parts of Paris, I presume for the highly educated to say at a dinner party that you voted for Marine Le Pen or even worse, oh, well, Zamor, I don't know. Well, I mean, he's further to the right, but in a more intellectual way, perhaps. But it just wouldn't be like you couldn't say that to your friends. You wouldn't want to say it to your friends. So this goes back to what we were talking about in in the last episode where I told Demir that as pissed off as I am towards Democrats, as much as I think that they have crazy ideas on race, gender, abortion, religion, and increasingly now don't seem to be don't seem to be totally comfortable with democracy as I understand it. I, I, I see Biden's pro-democracy speech as being contrary to the democratic spirit. With all that said, I can't really yet imagine voting for a Republican on the local level. I mean, I'm not talking national. That goes without saying that I vote for a Democrat. But even locally, like the idea that I could actually vote for a Republican, something that I've never done before in my life. And part of it is because I think about the people who I know. If people found out that I had voted for a Republican, even on the local level or for a school board or city council, um, they they would see that as a betrayal and it would have severe reputational costs if word got out. Um, I guess I could just keep it private because that's sort of what voting entails. But just the thought that I would be then like lying to people about the choice that I made or hiding the choice that I made on a particular November 8th, so I don't know. Maybe that's similar. Like it's a tribal thing. My tribe is yeah, my tribe. I, I think part of the mechanism is is similar here. It's that basically people care a great deal about the in group, uh, and you know, that's why it's very different being like uh, at odds with your out group and being at odds. You know, you can be insulted by all sorts of millions of people who, if they're people that you see at the out group and that your peers uh, regard as evil people, etc. Not only will it not bother you. Typically, but it you know it it will even be a badge of honor, and so you can it can be socially useful, uh, and, and you know I think some of the mechanism are probably are that that uh, underlies this stuff is similar to uh, the mechanism that underlie uh, electoral behavior I was talking about. But I think that's probably the case. So so I I, I've, I took down three notes, and I I don't I want to get back to France because I, I have some specific questions there. But just on the direct democracy, just to sort of yeah, round can, can, can I just well, yeah, can I just ahead. finish on mm-hmm. this thing? So yeah. you know that's where I was going is that look, so you know that's how people vote uh, when they vote for candidates, and and the problem is that because people vote in this way, this contributes in addition to and it's made worse by stuff like polarization I was mentioning before. This contributes to a divergence between policies. Uh, and that are actually implemented and people's preferences. And people still have preference. I agree that they're largely, they, they tend to be all over the place, but, you know, on, on some things, you know, they're not completely, hmm. uh, you know, there are still some things that on which people, you know, uh, are pretty constant. And uh, and so, um, so this, the fact that people vote like this when they vote for candidates, representatives, uh, contributes to, uh, 
increasing or at least maintaining like too much of a gap in some circumstances between policy and and people's preferences. And this in turn, I think, makes in the long run democracy less viable. Democracy even as a legitimizing mechanism of the of, of the sort you were discussing. So I think that having them vote on issues, it reduces the extent to which they base their vote on other considerations, because then suddenly you know, it's really about, it's more about the issue and they don't have, the, the, it's, it's um, they don't have, for instance, you know, they're not voting for a person or a party. So the, this sort of consideration don't kick in nearly as much, you know. And and, and so I think, I see hmm. that as a mechanism of, as another mechanism mechanism to reduce this uh, this gap. So, you know, I, I would turn it, the, the argument on its head by saying, well, yeah, I agree that people vote in this weird way. That's precisely because they do, at least in, in part because they do that, I think having a measure of direct democracy is good. So I'm not defending direct democracy uh, against representative democracy. I'm seeing it as uh, something that should we should have at least some measure of it. Complementary to it. Uh, in, right. Yeah, in complement of yeah, yeah, yeah. representative Well, so democracy. no, that, that makes sense. Uh, um, I guess the, 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 the point I would make to you is that, you know, I mean, again, I think we largely agree on the, the, the broad analysis of where we find ourselves right now that that gap between sort of you know elites doing what they think is right and the the big gap between preferences there um do you think then that 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 you know the traditional non direct democratic approach i mean direct democracy in a sense uh expresses itself through populism because there's an appetite for this kind of stuff and then a populist shows up except i guess we're seeing now that populists now then tap into tribalism rather than issues. That said, you know, Trump um, really was responsible for turning our debate on China fundamentally. Um, that yes. was that was something that was... Um, yeah, I mean, we can talk about that, but he did manage to but do that. But that wasn't in response to popular demand. Um, it was in, I would argue, at least in response to, you know, that, the, that whole concept of American carnage, which I think, you know, resonated pretty broadly uh, early on. Um, so it was, you know, again, it's, it's difficult, I think, to, 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 to make a clean uh, division between politics and policy is the other part. You know, I mean, I think I take your point that, that trying to bridge that gap and maybe doing referenda every so often is not a bad idea. And as you were talking, I I thought to myself, another thing we talked about, Shadi, was, um, the really good thing about, um, Roe v. Wade going away is that now it's a political football. It's an issue that can be actually legislated and, and, and worked with on a democratic basis rather than a right that is written in from on high and untouchable. And then it becomes this sort of totemic identity thing, which, uh, I mean, we're still not there yet where we can actually- So we're officially same... saying that, that that's good? That's our position? That's my position. I wrote about it. <laughs> I mean, I, and I, I do, and remember, I said- It I was about... nice seeing, knowing you. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I mean, I wrote about it and I said that, uh, uh, that, that the, um, uh, that Democrats stand to benefit from this because they're the first ones to disabuse themselves of this idea of rights. Now Republicans think that that the right to life is an actual right that's been somehow upheld. That's bullshit. And it's going to get destroyed at the ballot. And so, you know, we're going to get now actually a really uncomfortable compromise somewhere that makes no one happy, which is the best way, which is absolutely the best way where no one's happy. Um, but, but you know, going back to the question then is, you know, um, how how confident are you that one can really separate policy from politics in that sense? And again, to throw it out there again, there is that safety valve 
even in a representative, non-direct direct democratic thing, is that there's political entrepreneurism, that you, you sort of see a need and it's met that way. Um, now, again, it's not a perfect match, but then again, you know, on referenda also, the, these questions are also political. How are they brought up? And, and uh, there's all sorts of manipulation of how that's set up and how these questions are asked. Yeah, I mean, I don't... You know, I'm not saying there are no mechanism, even in a purely representative democracy, to address this problem. I'm just saying, on the whole, I don't think it's sufficient, and I think it mm. would just be better if we had a bit more some uh, direct democracy in the system. Mm. And uh, because you know, I mean, populism in mean, Trump is uh, like it's Trump was possible because you have a bipartisan political system, like something like this. And France would be much more difficult. I do um, want to talk about that. That's... And uh, so, you know, it's uh, in a way kind of a historical accident. Uh, but, but, but you know, I don't deny the broader point that, you know, even in a purely representative democracy, you have some mechanism to address the problem. I just don't think that's sufficient. And, you know, mm. the stuff you say about Roe versus Wade, uh, that, that's, um, that's also related to this because I think it illustrates a process that's been going on for like several decades now in, in Western democracies where increasingly... We are, through various mechanism, like creating uh, um, independent authorities, uh, uh, you know, judges, essentially, essentially legislating, uh, you know, supranational organization like the EU in, in, in Europe, etc. We're gradually taking away more and more stuff from what used to be part of the legitimate democratic debates. And essentially, in practice, those stuff are, gets decided by, by the elite. And I think this is a big problem because this is also another way through which this gap, you know, is maintained and increased, especially has the, as, because this was less problematic when uh, there was less of a gap between the elites and the population. But as this gap grows and it does, especially stuff like, again, it, polarization along yeah. educational lines, so and that's, this is becoming more of a problem. And I think it should be taken very seriously because this, I think, will create problems. It will delegitimize the you know we're we risk killing the magic of election mm. in a way mm. like this legitimizing effect that elections have we risk killing it if we don't pay attention to that sort of thing and so we i think we should and and i see again direct democracy as just one way among probably others to address this partially mm. i don't think it's a magic bullet or anything but i do think that uh this divorce between policy and the preferences of the population in some cases has reached such a level i mean no, i think in europe uh, uh, immigration is a great example of this. You know, you have a, an almost total. I mean, it's not total because you know, if the elite had their way, there would be much more immigration than there is in in Europe right now. But nevertheless, it's really striking the extent to which, for decades, people just say we don't want it, and and they're just totally ignored. You know, uh, and I don't think this can go on forever. You know, I mean, in this case, it happened to be on the restric restrictionist side. But I I think the same way about other things where I'm on the side of the elite. So you know, like the European Union is one example. You yep. know, again, I, I voted in favor of the referendum, for instance, but I mm. still think it's a problem. Uh, you, you really endangers, endanger the, uh, the, the, the legitimizing effect of, of election and democracy if, if you ignore that stuff for too long. You know, when people have a referendum, they say, okay, no, we're not going to do this thing, and then you, you do it anyway, and, or, you know, or you have them, like, you do another referendum, basically explaining them, well, you know, Essentially, you should vote the right way this time. Keep you know, asking the, the question know. until you get it right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, look, you know, and that's, that's why liberal. I think liberal elites carrying the mantle of 
we love democracy, we're democracy's defenders, is actually kind of absurd the more that you think about it. I mean, the left of center liberal project, certainly in the US, but actually, you know, more broadly, is about limiting the influence of, of mass sentiment, because the masses have bad ideas, the masses don't know what's best for them. The masses are anti-immigrant, anti-women, anti-whatever it might be. So it's just there's something very, there's something very odd about it. It just it doesn't fit comfortably to see um, all these Democrats, members of the Democratic Party, now saying that they are the ones that you have to vote for if democracy is to survive. Because part of the technocratic approach has been to, as you said, Philippe. Um, removing decision making from from the people and putting it in the hands of unelected technocratic elites who are experts and who actually, you know, whether it's the Fed or other other sort of um, expert institutions, that's been the shift over the past twenty or thirty years, right? Yeah, the Fed is good, though. I mean, like, <laughs> that, that's certainly one thing we shouldn't be voting on. I yeah, think. Well, I mean, you know, you you can say that and still. Uh, acknowledge that uh, some measure of non-democracy is also yeah. good because yeah. it, you know we do so. It's a question of balance, basically. Like, as yeah, I mean, the independence of of the central bank. I mean, it it, it has, I think, in my opinion, clear you know, good beneficial yeah. effects. You know, so yeah, you, you you know you can you can acknowledge that, but you know there is a it, again, it's a question of balance. There is a point where it just goes too far, and I think, uh, but but yeah, but I, and I was totally agreeing with you. I mean, obviously, yeah, the the left, not just in the U.S. but in in the Western world in general, increasingly um, is the party of educated people and who tend to support that stuff, you know, because yeah, uh, you know, they're the ones who are gonna, you know, from whom from which, uh, you know, uh, the people are gonna populate those uh, authorities, exactly. yeah. you know. Uh, uh, courts, etc., are, are taken, are drawn. So, yeah. But so you know, to maybe delve into a little bit about France, uh, a friend of mine uh, was in town this week, um, had dinner with him, and we we're talking about, um, you know, the political situation there on the ground. On the one hand, um, we want names. Hmm? We want names. Jeremy, <laughs> Jeremy was here. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, he's coming back. Uh, Great. We had him over at, on Wednesday. You should come over. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's names. Um, um, and he was saying, uh, I said, you know. Can we uh, say his last name? Just no, so- no, no, no. Oh, know. wow. It's a secret. No, no I'm just going to, I'm going to quote him. I don't oh, know if okay, he wants yeah, to get yeah. quoted. <laughs> a Frenchman named Jeremy was in town. And, uh, and he said to me, um, he said to me that, that um, he's very worried uh, about the situation. Basically, what, what was in the back of my mind is, you know, Macron, squeak through just now. Um, he, I mean, in a good French tradition is running sort of an imperial presidency. Um, and, uh, but unlike in other times, you know, he's founded this party and there's no one in the party that can possibly take the shoes. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it was, it, that conversation came back to me as you were just saying, he said, you know, once you travel outside of Paris, he said, the social contract's really breaking down. Uh, said the healthcare system's really messed up. Uh, it's just a lot of stuff, all the stuff that drove the gilets jaunes as well. Initially, it's still there. It's festering. It's getting worse. Um, and there's no one on the sort of sensible center right to even begin filling that space after. Um, so again, you know, uh, I don't know. 
react to any part of that uh, I mean, in, I, in the so light of everything I, we've I talked about. I do agree that there is a real question. I mean, I, I strongly dislike Macron, mm. but I, I acknowledge that. You know, what do you could, dislike most about him? I mean, I dislike his policy. I think, you know, I think he has no ideological backbone. You know, so when I say we could do a lot worse is because although he has no ideological backbones, um, he has like a measure of common sense, you know, which, you know, I know it's a low bar, but uh, <laughs> in this environment, you know, that's that's not something you can take for granted. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think his policies during COVID were terrible, for instance. Um, I think he has, you know, he has this tendency to like say to different people what they want to hear and, and then he will, you know... F- for instance, you know, to just go with the flow, like, you know, if you take nuclear, for instance, uh, when he arrived for purely opportunistic reasons, you know, because he wanted people in his coalition, the Greens, some of the Greens in his coalition, he just agreed uh, to dismantle one of the uh, nuclear power plant in France, which was working perfectly well, could have continued running for years without any problem. And, you know, now you know the situation, you know, that's something. And also... Uh, didn't, you know, committed to reduce the share of nuclear in the French energy mix for, again, no good reason other than the fact that, you know, it, it's quite extraordinary, really. Like t- 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the the sophisticates in France, and not just in France, but just put in their head that it would be good to reduce the share of nuclear in the energy mix. Why? Nobody really knows, you know. It's just like, it's one of those ideas but that... To- just to, I, I mean, I, I'll let you keep going, but just to, on that one, I was just spent about a week in Berlin and, you know, talking to Greens and the, the actually, I don't know, it looks reasonably stable, but it's probably not that stable as it looks right now, coalition there. What's the difference between Macron looking to try and corral some green voters uh, with sort of, uh, you know, not necessarily sensible, but nevertheless resonant policies? And appealing to their policy preferences. I'm not a green. I, I, I think the greens, especially in Germany, are kind of nuts. But, you know, they won. And they won uh, actually doing that. So how, how is it different that the greens win in an election and form a coalition as opposed to a French president, which is a different system than the, the sort of uh, traditional parliamentary, you know, coalition building sort of system? It, it functions somewhat differently, appealing sort of to, again, constituencies with sort of stupid sops, which is what politicians always do. I mean, it, it just, I'm not sure it's that different. I mean, you know, it, it is the way it works in France is very different. Like he didn't have to do this to win. He had already won, to be yeah, clear. Yeah, okay, fair. Like he was taking those guys uh, to a large extent for aesthetic reasons. You know, like he need, he wanted to have some greens in his government because he wanted to show that he had people from yeah. all of the different sides, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, that, and that's all. And those guys are just stupid. And, and you know, and but, it's not, you but, know, you, and, but not everyone agrees that they're stupid, though, right? I mean, so that's yeah. A subjective... Some people are wrong, but uh... <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, but this, this is this is the authoritarianism I wanted to pull out of you. But I, I agree. I absolutely agree with you. But 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 I mean, to Shadi's point, right? I mean, and that, that's what I was getting at. You know, I, it's the Greens are a fact. The anti-nuclear movement is a fact in Europe. I mean, I think but it's, they're it's small. Deeply... You know, they're like they're in France. Sm- they're small. Er, I'm, I'm talking about France, yeah. yeah but in, yeah. in France, like they. It's very much a minority opinion. So, and so, it was already back then, you know. So, so the, you know, the the as you just described Macron's rationale, though, is he's feeling uh, he creates this party, he wins. Uh, he's perhaps feeling like he needs extra legitimacy from a broader spectrum because it didn't exist before. So he's trying to buy off again a, a bunch of a I, bunch of latte drinking, like yeah, I you think, know, baristas. I think this is. I think I know a lot of people think this is this is why he did it, mm. and I think like this is not. I think this is totally incorrect. I think that people have this idea that that 
politicians make this sort of a decision always for like cynical reason because they make an like, electoral calculation. I don't think that's what happened at all. I think what happened is that the vibe was just that it was good. <laughs> but really, you know, I I think I'm I'm absolutely convinced that this is what is happening. What's so bad about the, doing something for vibes though? The, well, I'm nothing against doing something for vibes in general, but I do when it's disastrous policies. You but know, okay. as was, so when when the vibes lead you to do really stupid stuff, then uh I, I am against it, and I think that's what happened in this so case. So I'm glad that you brought up COVID, because it is worth mentioning that I I came to be aware of you for the first time through your commentary on COVID, and you were really, uh, you know, I, I think it's fair to say, courageous voice in the wilderness when you were taking the positions that were extremely unpopular, because you didn't really care about being canceled and that sort of thing. and Well, you know, I can't be canceled from anything, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. There's no risk, you know, it's just like... Gonna... Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Um, and I don't know if you want to just say something about... I, I know no one cares about COVID, but how much of a role did that play in sort of shaping how you approached questions around democracy? And because I think that you would argue, if and correct me if I'm wrong, that this was one of the great blunders of the technocratic elite was how they dealt with COVID that this actually demonstrated something rotten at the core. Yes. So I do agree with that. I very strongly agree with that. Like, as you say, it's essentially the point I've been making for two years. And, you know, a lot of the stuff I've done during this time is like, was actually pretty technical, you know, because people, you know, another thing is that I'm interested in is how people use like, uh, you know, statistic that's really voodoo magic to legitimize like really uh terrible policies that are not actually supported by the evidence i mean some of those papers were just like a complete statistical train wreck you know when you do when you know what the the fancy equations mean which of course most people don't especially in the media you can see that it's complete nonsense you know like and it's just like and it's not and so and so yeah i agree that you know and this is this illustrates a more general this is a very general thing you know, on so many issues People will use um, scientific studies that are objectively terrible from a methodological point of view as a cudgel to impose their uh, political and ideological preferences, uh, even though it's not, you know, uh, from a purely epistemological point of view, it's not really justified. How self-conscious is it when they do that? This is something I've always been a little bit confused about, because a lot of these people are, I guess, if you look at their kind of pedigree, they are scientifically... So literate, he, they do actually. So either they are deliberately obfuscating the reality to get to a certain ideological endpoint, or they're actually making a mistake. So how cynical? Like, so it's it's it's. I think it's a really interesting question. My my take on this is that you have essentially three classes of people. Like, if and you know, this is based on my experience with like the contacts I have with like economists, epidemic models, and stuff. Lots of them have reached out to me during this period uh, who have read my stuff. And, and, you know, some of the public creations I've had to, to, to some of my work on this. And I think you have uh, one class of those people who are just downright stupid. Like, <laughs> really, they really don't understand. I've had surreal conversations with, like, for instance, um, a woman whose name is Dominique Cossigliola, who's a, 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 an epidemiologist at the INSEM, which is the most prestigious French medical research institution. And she doesn't know basic statistics. I know it sounds like an exaggeration when I said that. And I know you 
rightly won't believe me at least at least not rightly because it happens to be true but <laughs> justifiably won't believe me but i assure you it's true she was saying things to me i've had conversation at first i remember the first time i had a a, a debate with her i was like oh i must miss surely i misunderstand what she, she must mean something else and from what she's saying because surely she can't really mean something that dumb okay what's an example, she did. Uh, just to give us a little bit of a taste because i don't know when you say something really dumb and it sounds to me like you think it's self-evident that it's dumb so, so basic errors of modeling statistics basic errors of just doing statistical analysis what's the basic where- for instance one thing i've had i think she was actually one of, of those people you know i made the point at some point that um when you when you when you when you measure a certain variable with error, which is usually the case, it statistically it reduces it reduces uh, statistical power. That is, that it makes it harder for you to pick up statistically the effect, even when the effect exists. And this is such a completely basic point, you know, like in in, in statistics, nobody denies this. You will find this in literally any introductory textbook on statistics. Mm. And I was saying that to criticize a study that didn't take that into account, that invalidate the conclusion. And a lot of people, not just her, a lot of people whose job it is to actually do this kind of work were telling me that I was making stuff up. I'm like, what are you? It's it's really, it's just, I was just dumbfounded because there's just like, nobody seriously who knows anything about statistics denies this. It's just such a basic Okay, but if it's their job to know about statistics and they don't understand something so So basic about statistics. Well, you have to understand that a lot of people, like people... uh, underestimate the extent to which being a scientist is like being a plumber. You learn a bunch of recipes and you, often they don't understand why the recipes are what they are. And this is an example, you know, where they will just, they go through the motion. You know, they've learned a number of tricks and they just go through the motion and they don't really understand deeply why they, it's a good thing or justified that they go through those motions. They just go through them. And I think a lot of the times this is what happens. So, you know, you have this class of people are just, they're just dumb, but generally don't understand what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, but how, uh, just one question before we move to the second and third classes of people. Yeah. Like, okay, they're they're dumb, but then at the same time, they got a PhD in a, in a related field at a prestigious university. They're teaching at the most prestigious French uh, university. They have peer-reviewed journal articles. Like, I, you know, to get to that level, presumably, like, they must have some redeeming qualities. Like, I mean, again, you know, a lot of the time, if you do something basic enough, you know, for instance, take peer review. A lot of peer review is about you. You have I call I call that scripts. So you know, most of the time, if you want to publish something, you need depending on your field, you have a number of scripts, and as long as you follow the script, so you go through the you do the right steps, you know, in the right order, you'll get your stuff published. You know. It doesn't, you know, you don't really need to understand what you're doing. You just need to apply the recipe. That's why I was making the comparison to like something like a plumber, although it's insulting to plumbers. Um, And so, uh, and you know, you can get a PhD, you can get stuff published in peer-reviewed journals by just like, again, going through the motion, doing the steps one after the other. If you follow the recipe, you you can do this. It doesn't have to, you don't necessarily have to have like a deeper understanding of what you're doing. But, you know, I'm not saying that this is all of those people or even the majority, although, to be honest, I wouldn't bet that it's not the majority. Um, But so there is this class of people. Then you have people, that's the second class, uh, the people like Neil Ferguson, for instance. So Neil Ferguson is this famous epidemiologist or infamous epidemiologist. Oh, wait, okay, I'm confused. That's Neil, not not Niall. No, no, not Niall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, There was a Neil Ferguson. Yeah, this was confusing during COVID, I remember. Wow. Yeah, 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 not Niall. Uh, And so this guy, uh, infamous British epidemiologist, 
um, he, he's not stupid. Like, he's a smart guy. I have absolutely no doubt. And, you know, another guy criticized Seth Flackman, who is less famous, but who published, uh, was the lead author on on the, the most widely cited uh, paper on the the effect of lockdown, which is an absolute train wreck. I mean, the, the not only a train wreck, but also it was intellectually dishonest because they he hid some... Um, you know some crucial thing that he found in the data that totally undermined the conclusion of his paper. I, I wrote something on this. He hid it. Yeah, we he, know that he he deliberately. I, I wrote some. I wrote something, and you, yeah, there is absolutely no question that they did. It is not. You know, there were several authors on this paper. It's not the only one. I, I you know, I don't know if you can put links. Uh, yeah, we can. Yeah, yeah okay. So sure. I'll send, yeah. I'll send you the okay. thing. You know, on this, it's quite shocking. Uh, and so, um, so anyway. Uh, and so those people, people like that, they're, they're really smart, you know, like this guy too, that was Flaxman I was talking about. I have no doubt that this is, this, you know, I actually know people who know him too. So I, I know he's smart. And, you know, I think it's, it, you know, people can convince themselves of their own bullshit yeah. very easily. You know, we all do this, you know, it's not just like, to some extent, everybody does that. It's yeah, very we just easy think scientists do. don't, that's a thing. And, yeah, yeah, and but, in fact but they, they do, do yeah. because they're normal yeah. people too. Yeah. And, and and you're right that people tend to forget this. They have this there's this whole mythology about scientists where yeah. they're not really human beings, but they are. <laughs> and, um, and, so, and so those people, they have some, uh, you know, uh, broad understanding of the limitations of their methods for instance and they will you know they follow the script part of the script typically you have a limitation section in your paper and you explain well you know of course we reach this conclusion but here's such and such reasons why you know this might be false etc and but because you know first of all because the incentives to think really deeply about this are not there because again you don't want you want to publish as much as possible in prestigious places and those don't incentivize typically you to think very deeply about the limits of the methods you're using. So they have like some, at a very general level, they have an understanding of the of those limits and they will even talk about it in, in their papers. But because they don't think about it very deeply, in part because they're not incentivized to do so, they don't realize, I think, the extent, the full extent to which it undermines their conclusions. So it's hmm. not that they're unaware of it exactly, but they're not fully aware of the extent to which it, it's... Uh, damning for their conclusions hmm. okay. so that's the second class and then you have a third class of people who uh not only are aware of the limitation you know in very general terms but also are fully fully understand the the extent to which it undermines the the and so i know a lot of people who have reached out to me who have met during especially during this period but even before that uh especially in statistics uh uh economics uh and also in epidemic modeling who you know, they know this stuff is bullshit, but you have to play the game, you know? Like, you know, you're going to be... It's it's very similar to what you were saying before about how, you know, you don't want to be the one admitting to your friends at a dinner party that, that you're going to vote Republican. I mean, not I know you, you won't, but... You know, you know. <laughs> he uh, might, he might. No, no, yeah, yeah, but, he will, he will. And so, soon, uh, soon. inshallah. <laughs> uh, and so... Um, it's very similar, you know, they don't want to be the one who's the party spoilers, you know, like they, it's going to give them a bad name and, among their peers. And, you know, they need them. I and those are the guys who are going to decide if they get promotion, if they get invited to fancy conferences, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, they're going to say about, you know, they're going to criticize that stuff. But, you know, it's very interesting to to see the counter because I, I know what they tell me in private. And then I see what they say in public. And again, I'm not even throwing the stone at them. I know it's difficult. But they're much more, much milder in their public comments on that stuff, you know, so they will say the same thing, but like so mildly as to completely dilute the effect. Uh, and so, you know, it won't 
change anything in practice. But those guys know. So, you know, I think that that's my answer to your question. You know, you have, it depends, you know, people have, you know, some people are like entirely clueless. You have some people have some understand the stuff, but at, at a very, such a general level and like don't really think deeply enough to appreciate the extent to which it undermines what they do. And then you have some people who completely understand it, but you know, the incentive structure is fucked. So they, they're not going to, Say it, you know, but isn't there a fourth class of people who are actually true believers? They are ideologically oriented. They have an end goal that they need to get to, and they will twist the science, the facts, the statistics as long as they get to where they need to go. Isn't that group two with just like red, particularly like over cynically? See, it's that 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 level of sort of right wing. Uh, pushback on it i just i i don't believe that there's like a class of evil scientists that are <laughs> that are are actually so committed to some sort of liberal i didn't say they were evil though no not even but you know what you mean like sort of so committed and ideological that i think Con- it's just consciously dishonest. not consciously trying yeah i think they're just sort of i mean i i i wouldn't say it doesn't exist you know p- people like you know i think i think it's at the margins like yeah. people will say occasionally like this guy was talking about you know again i'll send you a link of that stuff i wrote about this like he hid the stuff but i think he can conv- i'm sure he convinced himself that it was justifiable somehow yeah you know i think that's the mechanism psychologically the way it works typically it's like more like this than you know someone who's like admits to himself that he's basically a piece of shit or, you know, does this. I don't think this is how it works typically. And, I, you know, it's the same thing with politicians, for instance. People have these ideas, like they see politicians as much more cynical than they are. And I think this is something deeply wrong with a lot of what people think about politicians, you know, like because psychologically it's very difficult to go around and constantly say things that you're, uh, you know, in your internal forum, like convinced is false. So what people do is that they very quickly tend to convince themselves of, of yeah. what they're saying. Right, and, right. And, I mean, politicians, though, it's not that they're cynical, it's that they're psychopaths. I mean, I think you do need, like, <laughs> do a level to. of psychopathy to be a successful politician. Yeah. You, you, We've watched, not together, but we've both watched uh, the movie Wiener. Oh, about God, About Anthony wonderful. Wiener. Have you ever seen this thing? I, I I know the guy, but I haven't seen the movie. Oh, no. I, I, I warmly recommend it to anyone who, you know... It wasn't a, work a very of successful art. politician. Hmm? No, no, though. but it, it's, it's, an, it's an amazing thing because, uh, you know, the level of that man's psychopathy and his... And he's so open about it. And he, he even is... The allure of being filmed at this documentary as everything's blowing up, as his marriage is like coming apart, as the campaign is just melting down from he does not let them doesn't tell them to stop filming. And and then, you know, he's just confessing all the time. And I think it was towards the end of the film. It really struck me. You know, it's he's talking. He very openly talks about that need for validation that uh, and, you know, as you're watching it, I just remember just thinking. Bill Clinton, you know, like the exact same sort of stuff. And he basically says, you know, the Internet has opened up a sphere, an infinite sphere of people that one can please and pander to and and get validation from. So these people are these those yeah. are not the, politicians are not unlike I think scientists we forget that scientists are normal people we should never forget that politicians I, are psychopaths I, I agree but still they do convince themselves of their own bullshit although I agree that that's psychopathy to a certain extent right I mean yeah I mean the extent to which they can do it is psychopathy yeah. but I agree with you. I mean Chirac was the same it was like you know he has this thing where his advisor was like you know he, 
they were like before the first time he was elected in 95 there's a story where his advisors are like really down you know like really skeptical that he can make it because his right-wing rival was uh in front of him in the polls at the time and you know people really thought he was he wasn't gonna win hmm. and including people in his own campaign and he was like he, he tells them at some point you know guys i think you have no idea how demagogical i'm gonna get in this campaign <laughs> like he was very confident because of this and he was god he was you know it was hmm. like it was this man was incredible in the extent to which he could just you know engage in in raw demagoguery and, right? and and I don't say psychopathy to somehow demean these people I mean it's just it's what you need in a democratic system you need yeah, you need that level this i mean you need that kind of person and 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 if the stars align I'll put it further look i we can we can talk about you know uh Max Weber and the politics of conviction and you know but but so I do think you do need some kind of conviction to be able to be a successful leader. You can't be pandering all the time. Going back to my thing, this is why I don't think polls are a good thing. In an ideal world, you want more leadership and force politicians to like find and act on convictions rather than on, on, on constantly pleasing. But ultimately, democracy requires a certain kind of psychopath in our politician to be able to... Okay, to- but you define psychopathy, psychopathy. Psychopathy, <laughs> I don't know. Go on. As convincing yourself about something that is not true and deciding to believe in that untruth once you convince yourself of it. Isn't that just human beings? Isn't that just like what everyone more or less is susceptible to? I think it's just it's politicians are superhuman in that sense. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you could do it. I couldn't do it. I, I just I, I I don't have. I mean, another way to put it is is confidence. Self-confidence is yeah, another way yeah. to put it. But there's it's to, a, it's there's to a, levels. There's of, a debate in philosophy about whether you, you can actually choose to believe something. And hmm. the general view is that, no, you can't. But, you know. Politicians can. They uh, can, yeah. Oh, come on, guys. People choose to believe things all the time. That is the default human mechanism. Come on. But what's choice? What's free will? I don't think they choose. I don't think they choose. I think they manage to convince themselves that something that is convenient to them. But I think it's largely unconscious. Uh, You know, I mean, it it is too with politicians, but I think that... um, like, I mean, I don't think it's so much a difference of, of nature, of kind, you know, of nature as much as a difference of degree, you know, the extent to which the, and the ease with which they can do this without feeling like this uh, discomfort that normal people feel when they do that too often, you know, like there's something, you have something in the back of your head that makes you uncomfortable yeah, about the yeah, whole thing. Yeah. And I think typically they won't have that, you know, like they will just bulldozer through the whole thing, you know, like not caring about this. I think that's more of the difference. That's it for the main episode. In the bonus, for paying subscribers only, we turn once again to the world wars and whether the fever is breaking. Philippe gives us his advice on staying sane and grounded and points to how things might get better. If you're not yet a paying member, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and help support us. Hope to see you in the bonus.